what a relief to get the mask off. <laughs> Let's read, shall we, from Romans chapter 1. Uh, this is the book that we're looking at throughout the year, um, when I'm here with you anyhow. And uh, we've done the first part of chapter 1, so we start reading this morning at chapter 1 and verse 16. And it says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness, godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth in their wickedness by the wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him by God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And that's Paul's verdict on the Roman Empire. <laughs> As you can see, it's an inspiring passage we have to deal with this morning. Uh, just in case you weren't here last week, or just as a reminder in case you forgot what I said or fell asleep in the middle of it or something, here is just what we said last week. We said Paul wrote the letter to Rome, this big, massive epistle, which is the, the anchoring point in many ways of all of the New Testament letters, the one where the gospel is spelt out more clearly and fully and in detail than anywhere else in the Bible. Paul wrote this letter possibly for three reasons. First of all, because Rome was important. It was the center of the civilized world. 350,000 inhabitants, the biggest city in the world, the one that everything passed through, the crossroads, crossroads for all of its population. And uh, the gospel was absolutely vital to get to Rome. Paul thought strategically about the cities that he dealt with, and Rome was the place that he'd always, for many years, just wanted to get to. So he was sitting in Corinth at the point where he wrote the letter. 
he knew that he wasn't going to be able to get to Rome for some time, and so he wrote an important letter. But it wasn't just Rome was important, the church in Rome was important as well. And we said last week that it was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, and probably quite a tense place to be at that point. Because in AD 49, just a few years before, the Jews had been expelled from Rome. Uh, there were all sorts of riots and disagreements between them, and the Emperor Claudius had just said, well, I don't want any of you. All of you go. Now, up to that point, the church in Rome had probably been fairly Jewish. It had been started, we imagine, by people who were Jews, and many of the names are listed in chapter 16 of Romans. But uh, they'd been thrown out. And suddenly the Gentile Christians just had to organize everything for themselves. And so the church gradually became a bit more Gentile than it had been. There weren't so many Jewish bits and pieces, not so many references to the Old Testament, not so many parts of the service that reflected what happened in the synagogue. And so when the Jews were eventually allowed to come back to Rome, they found the church was a bit different. The Gentiles, who'd become a bit confident in their church leadership, had started to think that, well, you know, maybe God, they, they, God didn't need the Jews any longer. Maybe they were the new people of God. And the Jews who came back were scandalized and appalled to find just how Italian the services had become. And they didn't want it to be that way. So there was the possibility that there was an argument going on between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul strained every nerve in Romans to try to bring those two sides together again and say, look, you are all together the people of God. And we'll see that on our way through the letter. But there's a third thing too. The gospel was important. It was possible that right there at the heart of the Roman Empire, the gospel might get distorted. People might start believing things that were just... Uh, not quite right, that were a distortion of the Christian message in one way or, or, or another. And so it was important to keep it straight and make sure that that church, if no other, had a, 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 a full explanation of what God's plan was in a way that would exist uh, and be the foundation for all time. I'm sure Paul didn't know he was writing part of the, the Bible, but I'm equally sure that he wouldn't be that surprised that we're here <laughs> several hundred years later still reading it. Or that down through history, it had had such an impact on people. Because this is his major statement in which he obviously poured an awful lot of hard work of exactly what the revelation that God had made to him was. What the good news from God consisted of in fine detail. So, we said last week too, that uh, there, are, there are basically four parts to uh, this, this letter. First of all, chapters 1 to 4 talk about what the world's problem is. And you got a sample of that in our reading, didn't you? And also what God's answer to that problem is. Second, in, in, in uh, chapters 5 to 8, you get the, 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 the explanation of how God's answer actually works. God is bringing about this new righteousness that we read about in, in the first verses this morning. And what does that actually mean? How does it work? What does it do to us? What does it mean to be a Christian? And then after chapter 8, you get chapters 9 to 11. They're the ones that say, well, okay, hang on a minute. How do the Jews fit into this? Has God thrown them out? I mean, they were his chosen people once one day. Is that not true any longer? Has God still got any time for the Jews? Have they just been thrown on the rubbish heap? Or are they somehow part of this whole new thing as well? And those three chapters are important because they're the ones that bring the Jews and the Gentiles together and make them say, yes, we are all part of the same people of God. We belong. We are family with one another. And then finally, chapters 12 to 16 end in the way that Paul's letters always seem to end. He gives you a lot of teaching, and then he says, okay, let's do the application. And that's what every good preacher should do. You should never hear a talk or an exposition of scripture, uh, a message like this one, without, the, at the end, the preacher saying, right, let's apply this. 
Let's see how this pays out in the life that you're going to be living on Monday morning. How does this actually make sense in real life? Because looking at the Bible should not just be an academic thing, a study of theory. It's got to be lived out in the real world. And so chapters 12 to 16 talk about how we're supposed to spend our lives on earth as a result of all of this. Now, it will take us up until March to do this first bit. Uh, then we said we'll do March to June, talking about how God's answer works and what it does. The third part will be June, July, and then in the autumn, we're going to have a look at the practical bit of the letter. So that's, that's where we're going with all of this. That means that this morning, obviously, we're there. <laughs> we're in the first part of the whole thing. So... Um, <coughs> We've read the, 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 these verses where Paul just starts on his message. And, and what he wants to say really starts in verse 16. The first 15 verses, the ones we looked at last week, they're introducing it, saying why he's not in Rome, but how he wants to be there and how he's always been stopped from being there and how he really wants them to get hold of, of uh, the, the, the most important message in the world. And he starts talking about what it is. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. <laughs> That's a funny way to start, isn't it? I mean, he says, if I stood up this morning and said, well, I'm sorry, I've got to talk about Romans, and it's a, it's a book that I don't really much like and all the rest of it, but on the other hand, I'm, I've got to do it, so just be very patient with me. And I'm not really ashamed of it, you know. It's, I actually think that Romans is quite good. That's a pathetic way to start, isn't it? Unless, of course, the gospel was already being attacked. And Paul said it was. That in Rome, you had a flashy, confident, wealthy culture where people were looking at the Christians and saying, do you believe What? And, uh, and the gospel was being attacked by all sorts of people. Oh, come on, throw all those silly superstitions away and just live a little, will you? We're having a good time here. This is a Roman Empire. Come on, AD 57, wake up and smell the coffee. Live life the way it's supposed to be lived. And Paul says, listen, this message that you've believed, don't start getting ashamed because I'm not ashamed of it. And in any society, no matter how confident it feels about itself, no matter how far it gets away from what God said originally, the gospel still endures. It still makes sense of life in a way that nothing else does. And we're living in a pretty confident society at the moment. <laughs> we're also living in a society with mental health problems and any time in the 20th century, that, uh, that's another issue. And maybe the one's related to the other. But certainly there's a confidence around, isn't there, that we know how to live. Live the good life. Live the dream. Go for it. You can do whatever you want to do. You hear these phrases all the time, don't you? And it's, it's, it's crying in the heart. Because most people do not know what they're here for, what they're supposed to be living for, or how they can find real happiness. Do you remember when David Cameron, just a few years ago, started the Happiness Project, an attempt to see just how happy different regions of the world were, uh, the, of the country were, and how to make them happier. I remember the, the most uh, mournful place in Britain turned out to be Torrington in North Devon. If you've ever been to Torrington, you might understand. I don't know, no, 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 I didn't say that. But, you know, this is the way it is. People are looking for happiness wherever they can find it. And the Roman society was like that too. It was built on a lie. It was a fragile society. It would soon come crashing down in lots of ways through Nero and other emperors who would do the most horrible things. Um, it was built on slavery. And a large proportion of the people in, in Rome were actually slaves who didn't have their own liberty. And freeborn Romans often got quite nervous because they thought all of these slaves, they could have a revolt all these days and then we'll be really in trouble. So it was built on very thin foundations of Roman Empire. And Paul said in the middle of all of this, where they're pretending to be happy and they're not, where they're pretending to be confident and they're not, the gospel still makes sense, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Then he says, well, why? And he gives a reason for that. 
And his reason is because the power of God for salvation, for rescue of everyone who believes. If you want to get out of this spiral of insanity that's going on in Rome, then the gospel's the way to go. It might not be popular to be a Christian, but it's the only thing that makes sense. It's the power that makes it possible for us to be rescued by God. Why is that? That's his next thing to ask, isn't it? Oh, no, he says also, it's, it's for the Jew first, certainly. It started with the Jews, and the Jews are still important. So as they come back to Rome, you Gentiles, welcome them back into your churches. Make them part of the whole deal, because they belong as much as you do. It goes to them, but it's also for the Gentiles. So you Jews, as you come back to Rome, and you settle down again, oh, the church is not the way I used to be. No, it's not like it should be much more Jewish. No, no, no. Salvation is not just for you. It's for the Gentiles too. The Jew first, but also the Gentiles. Now, why is the gospel this powerful thing? That's the next question he asks. And he says, well, because it reveals a righteousness from God. A way of being right with him. A way of knowing that he's your friend. That there's nothing standing in the middle to stop you and him having the best possible relationship. And this righteousness is a righteousness, he says, that comes by faith from first to last. By faith all the way. Do I have to go to church? No, you don't have to go to church every day. Good thing to do, but you don't have to do it. It's not what gets you to heaven. Do I have to do lots of good things? No, you don't have to do some good things before breakfast every morning. No, that's not what gets you to heaven either. The only thing that makes it possible for us to have this righteousness is faith. Now, he's going to have a lot more to say about that later on. He just mentions it here and leaves it, so we'll so leave it there for the moment as well. But as he talks about this righteousness being revealed, he's saying, this is not something we've worked out for ourselves. This is something that God has shown us. Then he starts the next section, <laughs> which is interesting. Having said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel has his power. It's been revealed by God. He starts the next section, interestingly, in Greek, with the word revealed. He's just said, in the gospel, the righteousness from God is revealed. That's verse 17. And then he says, oops, hang on, where am I going? Back, that's it. Then in, in the next verse, he says, revealed is the wrath of God from heaven. And he puts that word, apocalypto, right up front so that you see the contrast. God has revealed this righteousness, this way of escape, this life belt that we need when we're sinking in the ocean. Revealed also is the wrath of God. Because he says, you won't understand the good news unless you get the bad news in place first. <laughs> you need to understand what the bad news is. And then it makes the good news make sense. It makes it intelligible. And so, revealed is the wrath of God from heaven. And you might say, well, why is God angry with human beings? Um, Bertrand Russell, a great philosopher, that's him on the screen there, uh, used to, was once asked, if you came in front of God suddenly and you had one question, you, uh, you had one thing you could say to him, what would it be? And Russell said, I should say, he had a very high-pitched voice, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. And and Russell claimed that you, there just wasn't enough evidence to show you that God actually did exist. That's not what Paul believed. And Paul says that God has made himself obvious in two ways. And God's anger is because we don't listen. It's pretty obvious if you look around that he's there. But most people turn their backs on him. How has God shown himself to us? Where is the evidence that Russell was ignoring? First of all, he says he speaks to us through his creation. Everything that's made around us talks about a maker, talks about a designer, the way the world is put together, the wonder we discover, the more and more science discovers, uh, it's, it's got to have someone behind it, says Paul. That's obvious to everybody. DNA, 
that incredible scientific discovery says that with the same four letters, you can write the script for every different human being throughout the world, every, every being that lives. DNA is the most amazingly simple and profound thing. And the more we discover the secrets of creation, the more we think, what are the chances of this just happening? And the answer is vanishingly remote. There's got to be somebody there. But God hasn't just left it to his creation. Paul says he also speaks to us through our conscience. He's given us a sense of what's right and wrong. And we know roughly what God wants. Even if you grew up in a society where you, you never uh, heard anything about the, the Bible or the Christian message, you'd still have a sense of right and wrong. might be a slightly twisted sense, but nonetheless you'd know that some things were right and other things were wrong. And human beings are built that way. Interestingly, a few years ago, a project started, which is still going on. This is its website. It was funded by Sir Alistair Hardy, who was one of the world's leading uh, marine biologists. And Hardy was somebody who, I think, never actually became a Christian. I, I, I met him just the once and talked to him, but it was at one of those meetings where he was having coffee and stuff. And we didn't get very far, so I never really got to the depths of Alistair Hardy. I read a lot of what he wrote, but although he never really became a Christian, and I think I, I grasped what the gospel was really about. Um, he was at prep school as a young boy when he went for a walk on a Saturday afternoon and something happened to him that he could never understand. He just suddenly felt the aliveness of nature around him. He suddenly felt, this is incredible, and there's somebody behind it. And he felt totally odd because he felt he was in the presence of a reality that he couldn't see, but it was there, and it loved him, and it cared about him. And that, sadly, was about as far as he got. But he was interested in that experience for the whole of the rest of his life because he couldn't explain away scientifically. He couldn't find a category to put it in. And so when he'd made lots of money and was very famous, he started a thing called the Religious Experience Research Centre. And it was at Manchester College, Oxford, and it moved to various other places. It's now at the University of Wales in Lampeter. And it has simply been trying to discover whether or not human beings have this kind of experience all the time. And uh, the, found the uh, leader of the centre until his death uh, a few years ago, David Hay, uh, wrote a book called Exploring Inner Space, in which he said, what we've shown through all of the surveys and things that we've done is that religious experience is biologically natural to human beings. Atheism doesn't come naturally. You have to argue your way into it. But with every human being that they've, they've examined, they've, they've asked the question, has there ever been a time in your life when you felt in the presence of something much bigger than you were, something you, you, you felt awed by, something that you felt how your life just had to be accountable to. And time after time, they found ordinary, non-religious people in the street who looked around to make sure the wife wasn't listening and then said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they said, sometimes when I was at the top of a mountain, looking down on the world below, sometimes when I was on the beach and hear the roar of the ocean and just see the immensity of it all, sometimes out in a field at night seeing the stars in the sky. But everybody has those experiences. And David Hay said, the trouble is we suppress them. We don't think they're important. We think they're just spooky. And we leave it at that. But God speaks to us through his creation. And God speaks to us through our conscience as well. And it's always been that way. A hundred years before Paul, Cicero, uh, the Roman uh, thinker, philosopher, lawgiver, uh, said this, When we behold, first of all, the beauty and brilliant appearance of the heavens, man himself made, as it were, on purpose to contemplate the heavens and the gods and to pay adoration to them, when we view these and numberless other things, can we doubt that they have some being who presides over them or has made them? 
So so he says, God is so patently obvious. He stares you in the face. And so God is angry because people are ignoring the way he designed their world to live properly. Now, when you say God is angry, most people think, ah, that's a problem with a Christian God. He's a jealous, nasty, vindictive person who keeps on sending thunderbolts and killing people off. Well, that's not the way it is in the Bible if you read it. And when you say that God is angry, you've got to be careful to realize that God's anger is a picture. It's, it's, our, our anger is a picture of that, but it's, it's not really the same thing. Why? Well, let me give you five reasons. First of all, God doesn't become frustrated. When you get angry, it's usually because of frustration, isn't it? I don't you know, we get so annoyed because we don't have the power to do anything about it. God can do anything. God is infinitely powerful. God owns cattle on a thousand hills. He's never limited in his resources. So God doesn't experience frustration as we do. Second, God doesn't lose his temper. Usually when you and I lose our, 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 our temper or, or get angry, it's because we've lost our temper. It's because uh, we just see red. We lose the plot. We kill somebody. And it's frustration. It's, it's you know, losing the plot. It's all those kind of things. God doesn't do that. God knows the end from the beginning. God is never surprised. And so God doesn't have those causes for anger either. And God's anger doesn't punish people with, with, with no warning. It's interesting the way that the Greek goes in this passage here. Because you remember it says, God has revealed the gospel, has revealed this new way of righteousness. And it said, God, it goes on to say that God is revealing his anger. Present, continuous. It's something that's going on all the time. It's not that God suddenly thinks, what they're doing? What down there? I'm going to kill them. Oh, send them a thunderbolt immediately. God doesn't do that. He doesn't punish us out of the blue. God keeps on warning us, keeps on arguing with us, keeps on talking to us, reminding us of the way we're going wrong. That's what the prophets in the Old Testament were all about. God, be patient with the people who were going the wrong way for hundreds and hundreds of years before disaster came. And God is like that. He lets us know through our conscience, uh, through the way that he speaks to the human mind, that all of this stuff needs to be sorting out. It's not that God comes in suddenly and says, right, enough is enough. Now I'm going to kill somebody. It's not that way. Fourth, God's wrath is for people who've chosen it. We can live under God's wrath or we can live away from God's wrath. The Bible makes that very clear, that the wrath of God is attached to people who are living their lives in a way which diminishes God's creation, which stops it being what it's supposed to be. And no wonder God gets angry about things like that. He made this world to be perfect. He made your life to flourish, to be rich, to be full of all kinds of experiences. And when people oppress one another, when people diminish one another's lives, when people distort the beauty of what God wanted people to experience, no wonder God gets angry. And so he's angry, not for no cause, not because he loses his temper, but his anger is simply his settled attitude towards anything that spoils what he'd set up uh, for us uh, to, to, to live life the way it should be. And God's wrath is there for his constant attitude towards sin. It's not something that flares up every so often, like a jealous, unpredictable king who's sitting in his court saying, I don't like your face, off with his head. God doesn't do that. God's attitude is constant, and his wrath is just a kind of human picture way of describing God's attitude towards everything that changes and distorts the plan he had for creation. 
So Paul goes on to say, okay, how does the slide downwards go? And Paul analyzes what it looks like. And let's just take a few minutes to do that. First of all, he says, the trouble is that when people turn their backs on God, first of all, there's no worship. They don't acknowledge him. They don't worship him. They don't give him their proper place, his proper place in their lives. And they don't show any gratitude to him either. They neither glorified God, that's a worship bit, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking, as a result, he said, became futile and darkened. And the word he uses for futile just means useless, not going anywhere, not doing anything. And he doesn't, he doesn't mean that the world suddenly stopped being short of bright people. There weren't any philosophers, there weren't any thinkers, there weren't any scientists. No, they were able to think, but it was a thinking that got them nowhere. They discovered great things, but they weren't discovering what their life was supposed to be for, what they were supposed to be all about. And their thinking became futile and darkened because once you leave God out of your system of thinking, you may make great discoveries, but they're not going to attach to the meaning of life in a way that makes sense of the whole thing for you. So you can discover lots of things in lots of areas, but your mind is still futile and darkened. And uh, uh, as a result, uh, the useless thinking led to idolatry. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images he made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Once you start to stop worshipping God, you don't stop worshipping. You just worship something else. And if your whole mind is so hidebound that all you can see is what's around you, the things you can see and touch and feel, then you're going to start worshipping some of that. And so the idols that people started worshipping in the real world became a substitute for God himself. You might think, well, <laughs> it doesn't apply to us nowadays, does it? We don't have little idols in the back room that we bow down and worship every morning. No, but there are idols, aren't there, in our society, which we worship. The idol of success. Some people, the idol of marriage. For other people, the idol of as much sex as they can get. The idol of making something of yourself. The idol of just having a good time and enjoying all the pleasures that life has for you. The idol of living the good life. All, all those kinds of things can become a source of idolatry for us. If only I can have that, then I will be happy. And when you spend your, your entire life in the pursuit of some limited earthbound goal, it becomes your idol. It becomes what you worship. And so Paul's not just talking about a society where there were lots of temples around the streets of Rome, but a society such as the one in which we live, where you live for something that's earthbound and limited and temporal, rather than turning your eyes to the person who created it all. So then there are uh, stages in the degradation that go on. And three times you'll see he uses this phrase, God gave them over. The first time is verse 24. Therefore God gave over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Uh, sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Um, when you start worshipping what's around you, then you just want as much of what you've got around you as you can get, don't you? And one of the biggest drives we've got is our sex drive. And so Paul uses that as an example. This is one of the first things that happens. You go away from God's plan for one man, one woman, and you start just thinking, how much can I get? How much can I sleep around and get away with it? How many partners can I have? And that is certainly happening uh, in, in Rome in Paul's day. It's certainly happening in our world right now. We're living in what uh, was called back in the 60s permissive society. And I've lived long enough now being a teenager when that was happening and to have seen what was happening right through the rest of my many years. And, uh, you know, what I've seen over the last decades is... Uh, uh, an increase in, in disharmony, in unhappiness, and in grief in, in, in this country. And it staggers me that so few people notice it. 
The reason we have the massive levels of mental health disorder that we do at the moment is because people don't trust one another any longer, because family relationships are broken down, because people are, 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 are doing all kinds of things uh, with their sexuality, which go way, way be, uh, away from God's original plan. And so Paul says, God gave them over to that. He didn't step in and judge them. He didn't say, no, stop it, it's wrong, I'll send a thunderbolt, because that's not what God does. But his judgment was much more chilling. He gave them over. He said, okay, just get on with it. Having got to that stage, there was another one. Oops, a few more stages. But anyway, this one. First, God gave them over to unnatural desires. Uh, you know, things get boring after a while. <laughs> you want to do something else. And if there's no God, if there are no rules, if you can do what you like, then why should I try things that are a bit different? And that, I guess, is why in the Roman age, uh, in a few years' time, well, just before this happened, you had the Emperor Caligula um, wanting to get married to his horse. And the Emperor Nero, uh, later on, um, af just after this was written, not many years down the road, uh, taking a slave, a male slave, whom he rather liked, and uh, turning him into a female by uh, pretty crude surgery, so that the guy was, 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 was his consort thereafter. Uh, all kinds of weird things going on. It's why in our age people get married to the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> things like that. It's crazy, isn't it? How can you be married to a physical object like that? And yet people are doing all kinds of things that have never been done before. And uh, LGBT is LGBTQA, but it goes on forever now. There are such so many different types of sexuality and asexuality and pansexuality, all sorts of things. Just this morning, I was just about to come out, and I thought, well, let's get the, get the phone. It's just been charging. And the first thing I saw when I put the phone on was uh, a new item. Oh, come on, you can do it. That's it, better. Top stories this morning. And, oh, they've changed the top story. That's a shame. <laughs> it's gone away now. But it was, the, the, the headline from the Times of all places was, Are We Getting More Raunchy? And it was a report on the rise of polyamory in Britain. The number of sexual partners people have has gone up and up. And so the second level is experimentation. And once again, God gave them over to unnatural desires. Third thing is, God gave them over to depraved thinking. Because when you're doing all the wrong things, it affects your judgment. It affects the way you're able to think about things. And one of the, s the problems I think we're going to have as a church over the next half century is that people are growing up now in a society where the goalposts have shifted so much, they've got no idea what God's standards really are anymore. And that being the case, then you choose from the range of possibilities that you know about. And you, your thinking becomes circumscribed, a very small circle. And the whole idea that God might have a say in this whole thing just never enters your head. I will remember years ago uh, taking a, uh, Derek Burnside, my co colleague at Belmont at that time, into uh, Maynard School in Exeter, where, where uh, I was supposed to spend three days with the upper fifth, that's uh, year 11, 17 year olds, uh, uh, a bunch of very intelligent girls just talking about um, all kinds of things, whatever they wanted to talk about. And obviously one of the things they wanted to talk about was boys and relationships and things like that. I remember Derek being asked, so you're married. Uh, why do you get married? And he talked about how he met this girl he really wanted to be with for the rest of his life. And uh, so he kept himself it's simply and purely for her. And they, they got married, and they both uh, didn't have anything to do with any other partners. They were just living together, um, having a wonderful relationship. I remember when he finished talking about his marriage, there was total silence in the room for a minute. Then one of the girls said, that sounds beautiful, but it would never work. 
And everybody else went, yeah, yeah. It was a shame because they just got a glimpse of how it was supposed to be and then said, happy, couldn't be. And the third thing is that God gave people over to a thinking that just got miles and miles away from the whole thing. So that's the uh, um, trajectory that this passage shows. You might ask, why does it talk so much about sex? And there are various, and I've been given to this, why does it talk about sex so much in this passage? Is it because sexual sins are worse than the other kinds of sins? I want to say no, very definitely not. And it's possible to judge people for sexual sins very, very severely indeed, just because you think, well, the Bible goes on about it so much, it must be really, really evil. And that means that you can excuse other things yourself. Well, you know, I'm not perfect. I know I do things that are wrong, but at least I don't do this and I don't do that. And that sexual sins are just sin. Any turning away from God is that way. You might say, is it just Paul is just obsessed with the subject? I don't think so. If you look at other passages where he talks about the wrong behavior of human beings, sex doesn't feature massively in it. He's obviously not obsessive. Is he quoting someone else? And this is part of the answer. Yes, he is. Because there was a book called The Wisdom of Solomon, <laughs> which at least his Jewish uh, hearers would have known about because it was very popular in the early church in those days. It wasn't actually written by Solomon. It was written centuries afterwards. But it was an attempt to say, the Jews are good because they do this, and God rescues them from all their problems, but the Gentiles, whoa, the Gentiles are awful. And uh, it's, it's stuff like this. They no longer keep either the lives of the marriages pure, but they either treacherously kill one another or grieve one another by adultery. All is a raging riot of blood and murder, theft and deceit, corruption, faithlessness, tumult, perjury, confusion over what is good, forgetfulness of favors, pollution of souls, sex perversion, disorder in marriage, adultery and debauchery. For the worship of idols not to be named is the beginning and cause and end of every evil. Now, you can make some similarities there <laughs> to what Paul is writing. And most commentators would, would agree that, yeah, Paul is quoting from and reshaping and using the wisdom of Solomon here. He wants, he's doing, though, it, though, for a very different purpose. Because the wisdom of Solomon basically says, Jew is good, everybody else bad. And what Paul is saying is, you're all in the same boat. Everybody's the same. We're not talking about Jews. We're not talking about Gentiles. This is just what being human is all about. And as you can see, uh, the bit I've highlighted in red, the wisdom of Solomon talks a bit about sex. But I think that's only part of the answer because the wisdom of Solomon talks about lots of other things as well. And I think Paul uses sex as his example here for uh, two reasons. First of all, because human beings have a very active sex life. It's one of the things about us that we choose. Most animals don't. They just reach a time of year and think, oh, let's think better start making babies. And you just get on with it naturally without thinking about it. But human beings <laughs> have a much more lively imagination. And uh, it's said, that, uh, I, I distrust this statistic, but it's said that the average 19-year-old male thinks about sex every 2.5 seconds. I distrust it. I'm not sure how you would ever check that out. But, you know, having been a 19-year-old male, it has a certain plausibility about it. And uh, human beings certainly do... Um, Think about sex quite a bit. And so when something goes wrong in a society, you will often find that the first thing that goes wrong is people's sexual standards. I think that's one of the reasons that Paul's talking about it here. Second reason, I think, is this is Rome he's writing to. <laughs> and if you look at the history of the Roman emperors before this point, Caligula, who we've mentioned already, Claudius, um, uh, others, uh, Tiberius, who retired early because he was a depraved old man that just wanted to be a paedophile. 
and uh, went off to Capri to do the most disgusting things. And all this kind of stuff was happening right at the heart of the most confident, flashy society in the world. And so no wonder Paul hones in, hones in on sex because the Romans could see all this stuff happening around them. And people saying, of course you can sleep with other senators' wives. It's just what you do. <laughs> of course you can sleep with any slaves that happens to be in your household because, well, hey, that's what slaves are for, isn't it? And the, 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 the Christians were being daunted by the confidence of these non-Christian standards. So no wonder Paul comes in here and, and talks about it as he does. It was a particular Roman problem at this point. Um, and I think we have to be careful in our day, don't we, too, that we don't use passages like this just to clobber other things that we might not agree with. There are lots of people... Uh, I mean, we're living a particularly difficult time, aren't we? Because around us, uh, there's a sexual revolution going on, and the gay lobby is particularly strident about what it wants, what it gets, and often it wins. And Christians often don't know where they are in the middle of all of this. And I think whatever you believe about homosexuality, we have to realize as Christians that one thing is very clear. There are now lots of people in our society who feel that they are gay, who have never known anything different, who would love to be different and cannot be. And those people, I think, uh, are, are, are facing massive pressures that Christians need to understand. If you look at the um, suicide rate amongst young teenage homosexuals, it's horrifying. If you look at the fact that they hurt themselves and abuse themselves much more physically than any other sector of the youth population, we have a whole generation who don't know where to go and who are crying out for help. And whatever we think about homosexual practice, we have to love homosexuals. We have to care for the people who are caught up in the maelstroms of a world that they do not understand. And sadly, Christians have become more known for their, their dislike and their fear than they have for their love and their compassion. And that's one of the reasons why the church is not doing very well in the midst of all of this. Anyway, I'll just say that bit and leave it. The important thing for us, just as we finish, because I've spoken long enough this morning, I'm sorry, I won't be here for another two weeks, so it's time to recover. Um, uh, but what can I learn from this passage? What has this passage got to say to me? Well, I think there are three things. First of all, God gave them up to the sinful desires of their hearts. That was how it all started. When people... Uh, want to get away from what God wants, sinful behavior starts with compromises. And it's so easy to slip into a way of life that you thought you never would. It's so easy, even as a Christian, to start justifying to yourself behavior that you'd never allowed yourself to get involved in five years before. And sin has a kind of creeping effect if you're not careful. You start making compromises. You start justifying things. And you end up in a mess. And that's why we have to keep constantly watching ourselves and being careful that we're not falling into the traps that are laid for us every day by the evil one. And as sinful behavior goes on, sinful behavior is never satisfied. You think, I'll just do a little bit. And then it becomes a bigger bit. Then it becomes a bigger bit. And you push in new directions. And God gave them up to unnatural practices, having lowered their standards. They started looking for other things that, that they could do because their appetites were jaded. And sin moves on and gradually it takes over more and more of you if you're not careful. And the third thing is that sinful behavior alters your thinking. You reach a point where you don't know what's good and you don't know what's bad anymore because you've, you've changed your own, think, your, your own practices. You've changed your own thinking too. And you're not able to to see just how much of a mess you're in. What's the answer to this? Well, Paul's going to say more about it. It's basically a matter of 
keeping watch over yourself, being unflinchingly honest with yourself, not allowing yourself to make excuses for you, your own behavior. But uh, I don't want to end just by thinking about it. So let's go right back to the start of our passage. This is the way the world is, says Paul. But there is a way out. I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says. It's the power of God working for the salvation of everyone who believes it. And God can take a guilty, compromised life, a thinking that's in the dark and can't make any sense of life the way it is, and pluck it out of there. I see in it, says this translation, God's plan for imparting righteousness to men. A process begun and continued by their faith. And the person has the faith to turn to God and say, look, I can't sort this out myself. I'm just a guilty sinner. But you can sort me out. I want you to take my life and make it something different. That person will find that in the gospel, there is a power of God which brings a righteousness you'd never achieve on your own. But that's another story for another time. Let's just pray together, shall we? Before we sing our last Fanny Crosby. Heavenly Father, this has been a tough passage to teach and a difficult passage probably to listen to because it's, it's just telling us like it is. And we realize it's only one side of the picture. You don't just condemn you're not just a God of wrath. You're also a God of love, love, mercy, and peace. And you long for us to experience the, the goodness that you've got for us in fine detail. And we'll be thinking about that tonight in Ephesians chapter 3. But we do pray that you'll help us to deal with sin in our own lives in the way that uh, uh, you only can do through the power of Jesus, helping us see what we really are, sorting us out, wanting us to claim your help, and to live for you in the midst of a society where that's not the norm. Help us, Father, as we go back into real life this week, have to talk to men and women who just don't have a clue what we're on about. Help us represent you humbly, faithfully, lovingly, that we can make a difference and shine like stars in the sky in our own generation. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen.